Those of us living here at the moment will all be aware that uh, tonight we begin a week of formal retreat and uh, possibly having thoughts about how it might be over the next week. Mm-hmm. We put ourselves under pressure. Stop talking, stop emailing, stop building, settle and feel the pressure build up, putting ourselves under conditions of increased intensity is very likely to reveal aspects of ourselves that perhaps we haven't seen before. And this, of course, is the, the point of it. And we, we want to we want to see all aspects of our being, to meet all aspects of our being and to let go of all aspects of our being. We understand that the habit of Clinging is the cause of uh, feelings of limitation that we all uh, suffer from and we're all interested in going beyond that. But of course we don't know what's going to happen over the next week. We never know what's going to happen over the next week, but uh, in a circumstance such as this where we intentionally... uh, practicing renunciation and increasing the uh, pressure, mm. greater likelihood of, of meeting ourselves in ways that we haven't met ourselves before. And, and it's helpful in such a situation to uh, take care to not try and know, to think we should know, uh, to try and predict what's going to happen, because we can't. That's yeah, a much more helpful approach to just recognize uh, with good intention, with gratitude for supportive conditions, uh, with interest in seeing beyond the way things merely appear to be, we're submitting ourselves to this process 
and allow it to unfold. It's helpful to, I find it's helpful to consider this as a a generative process or a generative unfolding in the sense that we establish the basic building blocks and we input the basic data and we study the Buddhist teachings and then we allow we allow the practice to unfold to think of course that we can just allow the whole thing to unfold it's like last week I was talking about the the intense effort that the the Buddha made before his awakening it wasn't the case that he just went out and sat under the Bodhi tree and, and waited for enlightenment to unfold uh, he did his work and, and likewise we need to do our work but there are stages of the unfolding like there are stages of growth uh, for anything yeah. like those those oak trees growing down by the lake that are doing very well. At some stage, somebody had an acorn which they carefully planted in some potting compost and waited for it to germinate and took very, very good care of it and then watched it sprout and kept taking very good care of it, watering it, looking after it until it got a little bit established and then maybe start needed a little supportive stake and then maybe at some stage, well, it did at some stage get put outdoors until eventually it got transplanted uh, down there beside the lake. And uh, But it still had a guard and it still had a stake. And, and well, now some of those uh, young trees, we, the, the guards are being removed and we can forget about it, the, the oak trees are taking care of themselves. Likewise, our practice. Certainly need to pay attention to the basic building blocks. We need to establish the body-mind in in sila, in integrity. So we make an effort with the cultivation of the precepts and then we experience the benefit which is Self-confidence, self-trust. Self-trust doesn't just happen. Self-trust is cultivated and uh, or with samadhi, with steadiness of mind. Um, the mind is not necessarily going to be steady. Uh, uh, senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or we can, the mind can actually be uh, all over the place. Uh, but with cultivation of discipline of attention, we experience the benefit of a steadiness of mind. We cultivate the steadiness. So same with panya or discernment. We exercise the ability to reflect wisely on conditions. We cultivate discernment and so this is our work, this is our job, this is our responsibility. And we've all been doing this for some time. 
establishing the body-mind and, and self-confidence, self-trust and steadiness, discernment. And We need to take note that things do reach a point where we can pull back from doing the practice and, and trust, allow. It's, it's a different stage of development. And we can forget about those oak trees down there now. They'll look after themselves. Well, they won't, as the case may be, but we've done our bit. Well, like the garden, the lovely garden next to the Dummer Hall here, I can remember some years ago when it was what we called the stackyard, which was, was the part of the farmyard where it's usually stacks of hay or grain uh, piled up, but in this case it was where all the rubbish was dumped, uh, all the old bits of farm machinery and building material, everything else was dumped in the stackyard whilst we renovated these buildings. And it was the last part of the property to be developed. And well, now it's a really lovely garden. But we didn't build the garden. What we did do was we cleaned away the rubbish, and we leveled it off, and we built the stone shrine and the pergola and the pond and, and then strategically placed some of those beautiful big boulders so we get a little architecture around the property and places to sit on and, and then plant the shrubs and the ferns and and that's our job done. We step back and allow the garden. But we can't necessarily predict what it's going to look like. As it happened, it turned out very beautiful. But we didn't do the beauty of the garden. That's nature. But we do have our bit to do. And it's useful to contemplate like this because if we're not aware of the different stages of practice or the different stages of development, we can be obsessing on the level of doing and predicting and speculating. And and that doesn't help. It just wouldn't be helpful to keep going out to the garden and pulling the plants out and seeing if the roots were growing or not. We have to plant them and then let them be. Likewise with our practice as we enter retreat and we've all for some time now been studying about the Buddha and Buddha's teachings and establishing the the body-mind and his qualities of self-trust, self-confidence, steadiness, discernment and it's okay to stop speculating stop predicting and allow and it has happened recently uh, it seems to happen on a number of occasions where uh, people have spoken to me about their uh, meditation practice and how things seem to have turned a corner and they've discovered something really quite new happening Uh, it's to do with this 
allowing rather than doing. And, yeah. Yeah. And one case was a, a young fellow was, who's been practicing for a while was explaining to me this conflict that he's used to getting caught up into where he's got a, a lot of space or a lot of time on his hands and not knowing what to do. Yeah. What should I do with my time? Uh, should I distract myself by going and doing some work? There's always work to be done. There's always something more that we can be doing uh, physically and uh, doing exercise routine or cleaning up. Uh, or should I be doing my meditation? Should I be doing some sitting meditation or doing some walking meditation or uh, <clears throat> contemplating loving kindness or should I be doing body sweeping? And, uh, and he was explaining how he was painfully familiar with this conflict that occurs when the space he's in is not defined, when he's not being told what to do. And somehow, rather mysteriously, instead of making himself make a choice between one of these options... He found himself sitting in a chair and simply acknowledging that he didn't know what to do. And sat with that. And as he explained, it was about 30 minutes later, he became aware that the conflict had resolved itself and he didn't do the resolution. Now, a year or two ago, I don't know, but in his case, sitting there in the midst of such a, a conflict, it's quite possible that he would have been pulled into confusion, uh, fallen into disintegration. Uh, we can't bypass the stage of, of doing. You know, we, in the beginning, we all start out by doing the practice. You know, we do the study about the Buddha, we do the study about the teachings, and we try to do the practice. And Maybe we even try to do the not doing, because we hear about it, there's enough teachers talk about it. And, but somehow, it, well, it doesn't work like that. We need to go through that stage. And, and, but as we do it, if we're agile enough, supple enough, interested in learning something new, not fixated on a, a goal, mm -hmm. learning as we go along, mm -hmm. maybe we experience this kind of shift that this fellow was talking about where it's like a new level of confidence. It's not like I'm not practicing anymore, but certainly you're not practicing the way you used to. Eventually, maybe it feels like the practice is doing you rather than you doing the practice. And that's very rewarding. It's another level of confidence, another level of faith. And that's the beauty that emerges if we are allowing the practice to unfold rather than remain committed to doing the practice. Mm. The letting go is not something that we can do. We've heard enough about it. We know that clinging causes suffering. Mm. 
we try to let go, but we can't do it. But what we can do is prepare ourselves with, as within with, self-trust. Self-trust is like, is like a container. Self-confidence gives us a sense of containment, of safety. The steadiness of samadhi means that we've got some focus, we've got some light, we can see what's going on. Discernment means that we can, we can ask questions which direct our interest, the energy of interest gets directed in a useful way. And then, wonderfully, we meet ourselves in a way we've never met ourselves before. And we're able to receive ourselves. And when we fully received ourselves, then letting go of ourselves happens. But we didn't do it. We do feel grateful. Because we all, all of us, all beings, are longing to be received, to be seen, to be understood, to be loved. All beings longing to be received. And, and this doesn't mean to say that there's just one of me that wants to be received. As soon as you start meditating, very quickly come across all these virtual me's, kind of partial selves floating around in our psyche. Probably most of us have had the experience when we start meditating to be surprised at how vivid the memories can be of earlier me's. The 11-year-old me that was you know, humiliated by my school teacher in front of the class or, or the 17 year old self uh, arguing with my father because he wouldn't lend me the car uh, like a, not just a mental image but a visceral vivid experience of somebody being here many years ago and, and so it's helpful to consider these different selves that are waiting to be received and to develop the skill, the preparedness, the the readiness to not be too surprised. Because the last thing these partial selves need is to be rejected or judged or, or pushed back down into unawareness. We start meditating and increasing the light of awareness and uh, like ghosts these disembodied selves float up into awareness uh, if we're not prepared for it we maybe get overly surprised and, and push them back into unawareness that would be really unfortunate uh, what's skillful, what's helpful is to say yes, welcome pleased to meet you to receive this being, no judgment, mm. Mm. and then 
receiving ourselves, we can let go of ourselves. Letting go happens. Not just a meditation, but of course also all of us would be familiar with what happens when we go to sleep at night, when the controlling ego is no longer fully functional and the filters don't block out these aspects of our unlived life and they float up to the surface and we start dreaming all sorts of stories. Now, it may happen to be because of food we've got in our stomach or because our the temperature of the room that we're sleeping in. It could also be unlived life asking to be received. Particularly when it happens that we wake up from a dream and there's the residue feeling in the body. That's a wonderful opportunity for practice that residue feeling that left over, that had been triggered by the dream, if we can inhibit the inclination to try and analyse the dream according to what we might have read in some New Age book or inhibit the tendency to go up to our head and think about what that might symbolise and just, just feel it, yeah. Who knows what that symbol might mean according to somebody else's interpretation. Interpreting dreams uh, uh, might work to some degree for some people. But in my experience, uh, often the message of a dream is is a feeling that we've refused to receive or found we weren't able to live through and it's now surfaced. The function of the dream is there to give us an opportunity to receive ourselves into awareness and let go. So when we wake up from a dream and there's this residual feeling there, it might be an unpleasant feeling. We might feel tempted to try and overcome it. We don't want to overcome ourselves. We want to receive ourselves and really avoid trying to analyse interpret what we think the dream might mean but just once we've received the feeling the dream's done its job we won't have to keep having that dream again mm-hmm. it seems to me that it could well be similar in the case where you know, people just love going to see movies or read novels I've often heard meditators uh, feeling guilty about wanting to read novels uh, or wanting to see movies. And on one level you think about, why would, why would somebody want to go and see a movie that makes them sad? Why would somebody want to read a novel that makes them angry or afraid? Well, these symbols, as in dreams, these symbols... Uh, sometimes symptomatic of unlived selves. As I was saying, like uh, 
disembodied ghosts floating around in our psyche because we didn't have the awareness, we didn't have the presence. Maybe we were too young, but we weren't able to receive ourselves at that stage of life. So it got stuck. Now, some spiritual teachers talk in a way whereby start feeling guilty about wanting to read novels or go and see movies. And, and it's true, it could well be just a heedless distraction. But it could also be that that natural, deep inclination within all beings to be free from suffering is suggesting this needs to be received into consciousness. This needs to be met. This self is waiting to be met, to be received, and to be released. And so we don't have to necessarily judge these impulses. Now, what does matter, of course, is are we ready to receive ourselves? And I would, of course, think that it's um, regrettably the case that a lot of people will read novels and go to see movies and will meet unlived aspects of themselves but not be able to receive it and not actually grow as a result. In fact, sometimes, uh, regrettably, make the condition of imbalance uh, even worse than it was. And, mm. So it matters that we've uh, prepared ourselves um, with um, the building blocks, uh, the abilities, uh, so that as the process unfolds, uh, as the path appears in front of us that we're ready for it and and there's always something we can do about that but let's not get caught in the doing mode and understanding the function of sila understanding the function of precepts so so, uh, not a lot of wisdom around when it comes to Uh, precepts and cultivating sila so often it's the case that that people think that uh, developing sila or uh, keeping precepts is all about being good so that we can avoid being judged by some external authority that's uh, a very uh, regrettable misappreciation Uh, I think it was last week we talking about that conversation between the Vinalananda and the Lord Buddha about the, the function of, of sila and, and the Buddha replies it's a, for the freedom from remorse and then goes on to, to explain how when the heart is free from remorse all sorts of other possibilities of development, of spiritual development unfolding manifest but when the heart is not free from remorse, then we don't feel safe. Yeah. So the effort we put into, for instance, developing precepts or, or cultivating renunciation, like particularly putting ourselves on retreat and increasing the intensity, and, uh, investing, what we're investing in is a structure of containment, it's like building an inner container within which we feel safe. 
Yeah, that, that fellow I was, that young fellow I was mentioning a minute ago, who was sitting there for 30 minutes, not taking sides with the possibilities of what he thought he should be doing, but just being there for the conflict, refusing to try and resolve it until it resolved itself. In that case, I would suggest that he had enough self-trust, he had enough of a container to feel he wasn't going to be pulled into conflict, wasn't going to be pulled apart into disintegration. Sometimes people put themselves on retreat, put themselves under pressure, increase the intensity, and regrettably it doesn't bring the benefit they were hoping for. Why? Maybe because they don't have that container in place. They feel threatened by, by confusion. They fall into becoming confused feel threatened by disintegration, they fall into disintegration. So when we understand this, we can appreciate that cultivating impeccability is really worthwhile. It's really got nothing to do with what anybody else thinks. Any external authority, it's none of their business. It's our business, it's our heart's business. Cultivating impeccability doesn't just make the heart strong in the sense of becoming rigid and 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 cold-hearted and boring. That's definitely not the benefit of precepts. Um, rather, it conduces to the sense of safety, mm-hmm. the container within which one can relax and trust, open up and receive all aspects of ourselves. Mm-hmm. A wee while ago, as a friend of the community rang me at a time when they were in the midst of particularly challenging circumstances. They actually are on their way to a court case at the time. And as a morally and legally complex situation, and she wanted to have some encouragement. how to approach this. This is somebody who's been committed to practice for many years and and uh, I didn't know the particular circumstances and was very cautious about giving any advice. But what I did feel I could contribute was say, well, just bring to heart, bring to mind your commitment to cultivating integrity, your, your commitment to developing the precepts. All these years that you've put into developing precepts, just just bring this to heart, bring this to mind. Just keep reflecting on this. And, and she later told me that that was actually the thing that, that, that helped her most during that ordeal. It was a very challenging experience, but she survived it, and since then she's had no reservations about how she handled it. And similar advice is given when monks go out on Tudong. I remember hearing when I was a young monk in Thailand, I I didn't go out on Tudong myself, but I do remember hearing how when forest monks go out and sometimes on their own or just one or two monks together out in the jungle and it's a 
can be very frightening, very threatening, and uh, whether it's the risk of wild animals or deprivation or disease. Uh, part of the advice that, that monks are given is if you feel assailed by anxiety and fear, you feel threatened, bring to heart, bring to mind uh, your purity of your precepts. We're not talking here about bolstering the ego sense of, well, I'm a good guy, I don't deserve to get hurt, but rather dealing with the dynamic of Dhamma. When the heart is imbued with integrity, there's a sense of safety, a sense of containment. And it doesn't happen according to our preferences. It's not the case that just because we think this should be how it works, that it's going to be that way. Like you hear stories of people who put themselves, as I was saying before, on retreat or under pressure too soon and it doesn't take them to a place of, of realisation of increased understanding and ability and quite the opposite story in the scriptures of one of the Buddha's disciples, the Buddha's attendant even, um, who insisted that he was ready for solitary practice and, and kept asking the Buddha, can I go out and do solitary practice in the forest? And the Buddha said, you're not ready for it. And asked him again, the Buddha said, you're not ready for it. And uh, the third time, as is, seems to be the way in Buddhist circles, uh, when this young monk asked and the Buddha said, okay, off you go. And went out to the forest and fell apart big time, completely overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and came back to see the Buddha to get some reassurance. We're not ready and then the structure's not secure enough. It takes time. The way we think about practice, we might think, well, I can imagine a new improved me that's not going to fall apart and that can hold it together and can handle intensity and put myself under pressure. And, but that's our imagination and our, our nervous system and our muscles and our bones the, and our breathing and the rest of our being uh, can take a good while to catch up. Um, one year and I think it was about 1978 during the, the rains retreat when Ajahn Chah uh, agreed to a very large intake of young monks mostly from Bangkok and, and uh, so the monastery was very full that year and there were these large Vinaya classes and teachings on the, the book of discipline that would take place and the Ajahn who was responsible for it decided that he would record his lectures on the Vinaya onto tapes. And then when these young monks met in the, the Dhamma Hall, and the tapes would just be played and they had to sit there and listen to them. And Ajahn Chah caught word of this. And so he turned up one day at one of these lectures or recorded lectures and gave his own talk on the discipline and pointed out, he said, well, just, just because you've read the books or just because you've listened to all these tapes about how to cultivate discipline, uh, 
doesn't mean to say you understand the Vinaya. It doesn't mean to say you understand the rules. You know, you've got to live according to these rules for five years yeah, or ten years. Yeah. In other words, the effort that we put into restraint, the effort to abiding by these training guidelines, the rules are not the point. The rules are just the guidelines. But what they do is they remind us to make the effort with the whole body mind to exercise restraint, to exercise restraint. Indriya Sangwara, the sense restraint. This faculty builds, constructs a container. And once we understand this, once we appreciate this, once we see the benefit of this, then even when keeping precepts can be tedious, we really want to. We want to be even more impeccable. And again, as I was saying, it's got absolutely nothing to do with what anybody else thinks. Somebody else thinks that we're being fussy or goody-goody two-shoes. That's completely irrelevant. We know that, that cultivation of impeccability contributes to constructing this container uh, within which letting go can happen. Mm-hmm. When we understand this principle, then yeah. even when practice can be not so interesting yeah. or downright boring as it can well be, yeah. when we understand this principle, yeah. we still want to give ourselves into it. We find this effort is what gives rise to the possibility of letting go. We can't do the letting go. The letting go is the flowering. That's the the beauty of the practice. But it happens. We don't do it. It's something we trust in. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namaya Namagata Sadhukaranda Dhamma Seh